Oh, well, thanks, Sharon. Uh, good to be with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's great to be opening up God's Word together. Uh, last week, we pressed kind of pause on our series through Matthew chapters 14 to 20, The Unexpected King, uh, to take a, a bit of a look at that passage from 1 Peter chapter 5. If you missed that, please do look up the podcast uh, and have a listen to last week's sermon. Uh, this week, we're coming back to our series in Matthew chapters 14 to 20, uh, diving right into this passage uh, about how we can care for a wandering brother or sister. So please do have that passage open in front of you. I'm going to pray for us now uh, before we look at it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together. Uh, we thank you that you gather us together as your people, that you might speak to us through your word. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would do that this day by the power of your spirit, bringing your word home to our hearts and minds, uh, that we might be encouraged by it, that we might be corrected by it, uh, that we might be strengthened by it. Uh, that we might also strengthen one another for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, you might remember uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were looking at the parable of the wandering sheep uh, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, just uh, before this passage we're looking at today, uh, that I said that times of change and transition uh, really are times when we as Christians are particularly vulnerable spiritually. And then last week, if you listen to the sermon, we, we saw in 1 Peter chapter 5 uh, that times of uh, anxiety and pressure and suffering uh, can be times uh, when the devil is really seeking to drag us away from Christ and his people uh, and to ultimately devour our faith. And my point in all of this, in, in drawing our attention to those things, uh, is that in times like uh, that we're in the midst of with COVID-19, when there really does feel like a whole lot of upheaval in our lives, all sorts of stress and anxiety in our lives, uh, it's pretty easy to drift. It's easy to disconnect spiritually, disconnect from Christ, disconnect from his people. Uh, it's easy even to wander into sin. So how is it in this time uh, that we care for a brother or sister who we notice is wandering into sin? How do we do that? Uh, in today's passage, Jesus teaches us uh, that caring for a brother or sister who's wandering into sin sometimes, right, every now and then, uh, involves excluding them in love, but always involves pursuing them in love. Right? Caring for, for a brother or sister who's wandering into sin sometimes does involve excluding them in love, but always involves pursuing them in love. So first, let's look at the context of today's passage. I think it provides a helpful framework for how we look at the details of today's passage. If you look at the context, you'll see that caring for a wandering brother or sister must be done with genuine humility and with a willingness to forgive. So if you look back, for example, to verses 1 to 14, Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14, you'll see there that the key emphasis really is humility. And Jesus teaches that to even enter his kingdom, uh, we have to display the humility of a child, acknowledging our complete dependence on God's grace to us in Christ. Uh, but then as we live in God's kingdom, we also have to display humility uh, as we show care and concern for, for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Because we heard uh, a couple of years ago that each and every one of us is precious to God our Father. So looking back at verses 1 to 14, that the key idea is humility in the kingdom of God. And then if you look forward to verses 21 to 35, the passage that Adam's going to be unpacking for us next week, the key idea is forgiveness. It's the willingness of us to show forgiveness to a brother or sister who has sinned against us. 
But I don't think it's any accident that our passage about caring for, for a brother or sister who's wandered into sin is kind of sandwiched right in between these two passages that are about humility and forgiveness. Why, why is it here? Because the only way we'll be able to care for a brother or sister who's wandered into sin is if we, in a kind of way that brings much glory to God, is if we show the utmost humility and a willingness to forgive. That's the only way this will be fruitful in our lives as a church. So with that context in mind, let's look at the details of today's passage. First, in the first, really just the first few words of verse 15, we see that really quite simple truth that we will all sin and we will sin against one another. Jesus says right at the start of verse 15, if your brother or sister sins... I just said that in verses 10 to 14, uh, Jesus was teaching us about the incredible love of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father who would pursue even one sheep that that has strayed from his flock. And here Jesus is teaching us that now we as Christians ought to show the same love for a brother or sister who strayed from the flock. But how is it that we care for a brother or sister who's wandered from the flock, in particular if they've sinned against us, or someone else as they've wandered. And now our translation says, if a brother or sister sins. Right? But, but let's be honest, the reality of life in, in the Christian community is that it's more a matter of when, not if. Right? In fact, that the, the kind of word there for if could easily be translated as when. It's probably better to translate it as when. When your brother or sister sins against you or someone else. How do you, how do you respond? How do you deal with that? And notice the change of language right here at the start of verse 15. In verses 1 to 14, if you scan back, uh, Jesus repeatedly refers to us as his people uh, as little children or or little ones. Here he changes the language to brothers and sisters. What's the point? The point is that that while the the principles in this passage uh, could be relevant and equally applicable to any relationship, whether whether the people are Christians or not, uh, this passage is in particular about how to deal with sin in the church. How do you deal with it when a fellow child of God, our Heavenly Father, sins? How do you deal with it when a brother or sister sins against you? Which leads to that footnote. Is it just sins or sins against you? You, you see the footnote there, either in your actual Bible perhaps, or, or certainly on the passage in the welcome card. Is it just sins or sins against you? Uh, probably Matthew's uh, original version of this verse just said, if your brother or sister sins. Well, that's why the NIV puts against you down in the footnote. Uh, it seems like some scribes who are copying out their, their copies of Matthew's Gospel uh, looked at verse 15 in light of Peter's question in verse 21. If you scan down, you, you'll see that Peter in verse 21 asks Jesus, uh, Lord, time shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Oh, so some people who were writing out their uh, manuscripts of Matthew's Gospel thought, well, let's make those two verses match up more and insert against, uh, against me into verse 15. So most, most likely, uh, Matthew originally said, if your brother or sister sins. And some of you are like, why is Aaron banging on about footnotes so much? I don't normally do that. But in this case, I, I think it's kind of important, because while this passage uh, is in particular uh, about how to care for a brother or sister who sins against you, 
it's not excluding the possibility of caring for a brother or sister who's wandering into sin against someone else, a sin that's not directly against you. Let's say I hear about a brother who's addicted to pornography, for example. That sin's not directly against me. But as their brother in Christ, I still want to seek to care for them in the midst of that sin. You might hear of a sister in Christ who's really struggling with envy towards their friends or their colleagues. That's probably not a sin directly against you. It might be. But even if it's not, you you can still care for your brother, uh, for your sister, in the midst of her sin. So we learn two things just from these first few words of verse 15. The first is we learn that all of us are going to sin. We ought not be surprised by that. This side of heaven, none of us are going to be perfect. All of us will sin. As we just sung, all of us are prone to wander. All of us will sin. And we will sin against one another. We shouldn't really be surprised by that either. Sometimes I'm doing premarital counselling with a couple and not, not anyone who'd be listening to this stream, of course, but sometimes I'm doing it with a couple, and they seem to have the idea uh, that if you bring a sinful man and a sinful woman together, uh, the end result is going to be sinless marital bliss, the, the combination of two lots of sin. In reality, what you've got is twice the sin to deal with. Likewise, when Jesus gathers us together as his church, uh, a whole lot of sinful people doesn't equal sinless bliss. It, it just equals a whole lot of sin to deal with. We will sin, and we will sin against one another. I say, how do we deal with that sin? How do we care for a brother or sister who we notice has wandered into sin? Well, first, in verses 15 to 17, Jesus says, we must always care for that brother or sister by pursuing them in love. We must seek to emulate our loving Heavenly Father, who goes, over, uh, to, who goes out after even one wandering sheep to bring them back to the fold. Oh, well, what does that loving pursuit look like? I, I want to give you five principles uh, from verses 15 to 17, or at least the first part of verse 17. So the first principle uh, is that the, we're, we're to go and point out our brother or sister's sin. Right, it's right there in the next sentence. If, you, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's so judgmental. Right? But it does have to be read in light of verses 1 to 14, doesn't it? The key word there was humility. We only go and point out our brother or sister's sin uh, with the utmost humility. But it also has to be read in light of what Jesus taught uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You, you might remember Jesus said there uh, that you don't point out the speck in a brother or sister's eye uh, until you've removed the log from your own eye. We should never uh, go to our brother or sister and point out their fault without first being willing to humbly confess our own faults. But with those two kind of disclaimers in mind, Jesus still says if our brother or sister wanders into sin, we must go to them, we must pursue them, uh, and we must point out their sin. Uh, To point out their fault there is, is to expose their sin. It's to bring it into the light. Notice Jesus doesn't say that we're we're to pretend that they didn't sin. He doesn't say that we're sort of to minimise their sin in the name of being nice or or loving. It's never loving to leave a brother or sister wandering in unrepentant sin. That's not loving. 
Unrepentant sin is what excludes people from God's kingdom. So if you really love a brother or sister, you'll feel compelled to to go to them, to to pursue them in love and to point out their sin. That's the first principle. Uh, The second is you go and point out their sin in person. And Jesus says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And now I totally recognise in the midst of, of a kind of global pandemic, COVID-19, it's nearly impossible to put this particular principle into practice. Uh, But as hard as it might be to believe right now, COVID-19 is not going to last forever. Uh, And this is still a really important principle. If your brother or sister kind of wanders into sin, uh, you don't shoot off a text message. You don't get onto them on Messenger or WhatsApp. Jesus says you go to them in person and you talk to them about it. A 3 John verses 13 and 14 says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. And that's what Jesus is encouraging here. Go to your brother or sister and talk to them in person. That doesn't mean you can never write things down. In fact, if a brother or sister has sinned against you and emotions are running high, often it's very helpful to write things down. So that you can clarify your own thinking. So that when you do meet in person, you can actually say what you mean and mean what you say. But it's still important to go and meet with them in person, as far as possible. That way, what's the positive of that? The positive of meeting in person is you hear their tone of voice. The positive is that you see all their body language. The positive is that you have the maximum, maximum chance of having a fruitful conversation. If it's not possible to meet in person, let let me encourage a video call. You know, we're all getting very familiar with uh, video conferencing uh, in the midst of this situation. Let me encourage that. On a video call, sure, it's a little bit more clunky and maybe the internet connection uh, out a little, but you do get their tone of voice and you do get their body language. Much better chance of a fruitful conversation. If that's not possible, maybe you schedule a phone call. I say schedule the phone call, but because uh, that gives your brother or sister a heads up. Look, I'd like to talk to you about something. You don't want them to kind of stew on it for too long. But you you want to let them know, look, this is a conversation we need to have. Maybe let's set aside half an hour to chat about it. And with a phone call, at least you still get their tone of voice, don't you? No body language, but you do get their tone of voice. And if all that fails, you might decide to send off a very carefully worded email. Or what you must never do if your brother or sister sins against you or someone else is kind of shoot off a frustrated text or email. Of course, that makes you feel good. You've had the chance to get some stuff off your chest. It also feels very efficient. You know, two minutes of keyboard warrior. You've got it out of your system and then you can move on with your life. The only problem with that is that it's really effective for actually dealing with the situation for resolving any sin that might have occurred. So you go and point out your brother's sin, and you go and point it out in person. Third, you go and point it out alone. This is just kind of providing a little bit of extra clarity around that second point, that the phrase, just between the two of you, doesn't just mean in person, it means alone, literally alone. So when your brother or sister sins against you, you don't go and complain about it to someone else. 
You don't go and gossip about it. You don't slander their reputation amongst other people. You don't gang up with them, gang up on them with two or three other people. At least initially, you go to them alone and you talk about it. And once again, a couple of disclaimers here. The first is that in some situations, it might be wise to speak to a pastor or to a trusted and wise Christian friend before you talk to your brother or sister alone. You don't have to go, you don't even have to mention who the other person is. You don't have to go into all the specifics of the situation. But having this kind of, situ, uh, this kind of conversation uh, might help in at least three ways. The, the first way it might help uh, is to help you to sort out uh, whether this actually is an issue of sin. First Peter says uh, that love covers a multitude of sins. And it is the case that as we rub up against one another, kind of bumping in our sinfulness uh, in community life, uh, we're going to kind of cause all sorts of slights to one another. And not all of those have to be dealt with in this way. Some of them we can just let go through to the keeper. So you, you want to clarify, is this actually something that needs to be addressed in this way? A second, uh, you want to clarify uh, that you're motivated by love for your brother or sister. Right? Not, not just a desire to, to prove yourself right. Having a conversation can help that. And third, you, you might want to clarify your plan for the conversation. Well, what, is that? what exactly is it that you want to say? So sometimes it can be helpful to have this kind of conversation before you talk to your brother or sister in person and alone. And the second disclaimer is that there are some situations... Uh, fairly rare, but there are some situations where the, the power differential between you or your brother or sister has sinned, uh, who has sinned against you is so great, uh, perhaps even uh, an abusive situation, uh, where it's just not safe for you to talk to them alone. Right? In that situation, you absolutely have to take someone along with you, someone to support you in that conversation, not necessarily to have the conversation for you, but to support you to have the conversation you need to have. So that's three principles. Go and point out your brother or sister's sin. Go in person. Go alone. And fourth, uh, go with the aim of winning the person, not winning the argument. Have a look there. Go and point out their fault, Jesus, in the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And now clearly, if they listen to you there, it's a little bit more than them kind of hearing you out for 10 minutes and then it completely ignoring what you've said, right? That's a kind of version of listening. Uh, but here, it's clear that Jesus means more than that, right? He's kind of saying, you'll know that your brother or sister has really listened to you if they start to show signs of repentance. Or perhaps they say sorry. Perhaps, perhaps they confess their sin. Perhaps they ask you for forgiveness, Perhaps they make a commitment to living differently in the future, by God's grace, with God's help. And Jesus says, if that happens, if you start to, to see signs that they've really listened to you, that they're starting to repent of their sin, then that is a point to celebrate. Why? Because you have won them over. You've gained them back for the kingdom. Your, your brother or sister who was wandering away in their sin from Christ and his people had been won back into the kingdom of God. And that's a wonderful thing to celebrate. You see, the aim in this conversation is not to win an argument, is not to feel vindicated, is not to prove that you are right and they were wrong, but to win a person back for the kingdom of God. That's what pursuing your brother in love always requires. 
uh, that you go to them and point out their sin, that you go in person, that you go alone, uh, that you go with, with the aim of winning them, not winning an argument. And fifth, uh, that you go with an unwavering commitment to truth and justice. An unwavering commitment to truth and justice. Well, look at verse 16. Uh, Jesus says, But uh, if they will not listen, take one or two others along, uh, so that every matter might be, uh, may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus says, if you're, not only, uh, if you're not able to win them over when you speak to them by yourself, uh, then love demands that you take two or three witnesses along with you. Love demands that. Well, why these witnesses? Well, the verse tells us, so that. What's the purpose? So that. Every matter, well, which is literally every word or every statement, perhaps even accusation, might be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And you'll see in the footnote that this is a, a kind of a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And really, it's a, a pretty basic principle of law, isn't it? If you're going to accuse anyone, really, particularly a brother or sister of doing wrong, uh, then you've got to make sure your evidence for their wrong is clear, is reliable, is accurate, is persuasive. Because the aim here is that because of the weight of the reliable evidence from these two or three witnesses, the brother or sister actually starts to have their sin brought into the light, it's exposed, it's pointed out, and they repent. They're won over for the kingdom. And that will only work if they've seen that you've made every effort to represent their sin fairly with a commitment to truth and justice. You haven't exaggerated their sin. That would be completely untrue and unjust. But you haven't minimised their sin because that would be incredibly unloving. There's an unwavering, unwavering commitment here to truth and justice. And now, now, one question this verse doesn't answer is, who should these witnesses be? Now, in theory, if you're just reading it on face value, you think, well, this could be any two or three people in the church uh, who are aware of the brother or sister's sin, and that could be the case. But given the emphasis here on a careful commitment to truth and justice in this process, which I think often requires a certain level of spiritual and emotional maturity, I think it is probably best if at least one of these witnesses uh, is a wise leader in the church. A wise leader in the church in our context. Uh, this is often the point in this sort of process where one of the elders would get involved. Right? Because we as a church uh, have appointed them as an elder uh, because we recognise them to have that certain level of spiritual and emotional maturity. They're the kind of maturity that would help them to deal with this sort of situation. If an elder's not involved directly, that's okay. Uh, perhaps a, a, a gospel community leader or maybe a key ministry team leader uh, who's able to be in conversation with the elders. Uh, so the hope uh, at the end of verse 16 is again, it's not there in the text, but it's implied that the hope is that you've won your brother and sister, uh, brother or sister over by going to them with these two or three witnesses. Uh, but Jesus is a realist, isn't he? He knows that that doesn't always happen. So in verse 17, he says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. 
Now, you, you might remember from our series last year where we looked at the church and membership and baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, that that word church can sometimes refer to a particular local church, like Darabin Presbyterian Church, and other times it can refer uh, to what you might call the universal church. The church that Adam was referencing in Hebrews 12 at the start of our service. The church that consists of every believer in every time and place. And of course here I think it's pretty obvious that Jesus is referring to a particular local church. After all, that's the only church you can really tell about a brother or sister's sin. Which raises a pretty important question. How exactly do you tell the church? You could, uh, when we're back together meeting physically, uh, perhaps you could just yell it out in the opening bracket of praise and worship songs. You know, a little lull and, oh, what about this brother's sin? You know, you could uh, get up and speak it out in the announcements. I don't recommend those approaches, but they could be a, a, a reading of this. You've just got to tell it to the church. Uh, the process I would recommend uh, is that you perhaps first tell the elders uh, as uh, authorised kind of representatives of the church. Why? But because we've seen that the whole emphasis in these verses uh, is working through a process that demonstrates that commitment to truth and justice. I think telling the elders first helps with that. It provides another opportunity to make sure the accusation is true. And it provides another opportunity to make sure the process has been completely just. It also offers another layer of protection for the brother or sister. Well, there's a possibility of things going more public at some point, but we want to avoid that at all costs. That's what Jesus says here. Uh, if they refuse to listen even to the church, which at least initially could be if they refuse to listen even to the elders, the elders who, who over an extended period of time sit with this brother or sister and, and teach them from God's word, that they remind them of the gospel, that they uh, urge them to repent of their sin, they warn them about God's judgment. That the elders sit with the brother or sister and talk to them about that. And if the brother or sister continues to wander, we'll get to that in a second. I don't know what's stopping midstream there. But let's pause and acknowledge Jesus' teaching in the first part of this passage is that if a brother or sister is wandering into sin, we must always care for them by lovingly pursuing them. We keep going to them and we keep going to them for as long as we possibly can to win them over for the kingdom. But sometimes it does become clear that our pursuit of them isn't going to be successful. And no matter how, far, uh, how much we come back to them, uh, they keep walking away. They keep wandering, even running away. Uh, which leads to Jesus' second point, uh, which is that sometimes we have to care for a wandering brother or sister, not by pursuing them, but by excluding them. Excluding them out of love. The second half of verse 17, Jesus says that uh, if over a period of time it becomes apparent that a wandering brother or sister uh, will not listen to the church, that is, to the elders is my understanding here, uh, out of deep love and concern for that brother or sister, the elders must announce to the church, uh, to either the whole church or to some relevant segment of the church, uh, that as far as we can tell, this person who's still professing to be a Christian uh, is living in a way that's just not fitting for a Christian. So out of our deep love and concern for them, we as a church must treat them as we would a pagan or a tax collector. 
Oh, we treat them as we, as we would a non-Christian. Yeah, some of you might think, well, what, what would that actually look like? It's a good question. It's important to remember that Jesus was known as someone who was a friend of pagans and tax collectors. Right, so to treat someone as you would a pagan or a tax collector, I think is to treat them as you would a non-Christian friend. Right, as far as we can tell, they're no longer a brother or sister, or no longer, or maybe never were, a brother or sister in Christ. But that doesn't mean you don't treat them with love. It doesn't mean you don't treat, it with, with, treat them with dignity and respect as a non-Christian friend. It certainly doesn't mean they can't be included in our church gatherings. Why right? we sort of want them to keep coming along so that they can keep hearing the gospel. But if we love for them, we must exclude them from certain privileges that rightly belong to Christians to clarify things for them and for us. Those privileges might be the Lord's Supper, for example. It's a meal for Christians. Being a member of our church, voting in certain procedures, serving on a ministry team. Uh, having particular leadership positions, being an elder or on a board of management. Right? Sometimes we care for a wandering brother or sister by excluding them in love. And now, of course, there are at least two difficulties of this. Uh, the first difficulty uh, is a, a real cultural difficulty, uh, which is that in our culture, it's very hard for us to understand how excluding someone from anything could be an expression of love and care. It's just that, like we're a hyper-inclusive culture. So the whole concept of exclusion is just kind of anathema to us. But here, it is loving. It's loving as a last resort to exclude a wandering brother or sister from the privileges of being a member of the church because it just might help them to repent and to avoid God's judgment. And that is more important than being inclusive at all costs. Their ultimate salvation is most important. Which leads to the second difficulty we have, which is that in Jesus' day, there was probably only one church in town, which means that this kind of exclusion was really quite powerful. Today, of course, if we were to exclude a brother or sister from our church in this kind of formal and official way, they'd probably just go up the road to another church. How dare that church exclude me, bearing in mind the cultural difficulty I just mentioned. As far as I can tell, the only way that wouldn't happen is if the depth of relationships in our church was so strong, so deep, so thick, that it was actually painful to be excluded from them. So the excluded brother or sister is moved by that pain, the suffering of being excluded, to realise their sin, to repent of their sin and to be restored to fellowship with Christ and his people. Now perhaps some of you thinking, uh, some of you are thinking, uh, what gives the church the right to do such a thing? Uh, to exclude someone who professes to be a Christian? Uh, I think Jesus answers that in the rest of the passage, verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, Jesus says, uh, Truly I tell you, He's saying, listen up to this, I'm serious about this. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, some of you might remember that language, for really match up its decisions to match whatever the decision the church made on earth. 
Uh, the footnote's much better. It suggests that uh, whatever uh, decision a church makes in these sort of matters, uh, in a prayerful and considered way, uh, excuse me, uh, about a kind of sin uh, or judgment or dispute, that decision uh, will be matched by a decision that's already been made in heaven. I'll try and draw the threads together of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. In Matthew 16, the language of binding and loosing uh, is a metaphor for the local church's authority to test people's profession of faith and to affirm that they have been included in God's kingdom. To to say to that person, uh, as far as we can tell, the door of God's kingdom has been opened to you. Why? But Because through faith in the gospel, uh, you have been loosed of your sins. Through the preaching of the gospel and your faith in it, uh, you have been loosed from your sins. You've been forgiven of your sins. And Matthew 18 comes up with a similar, uh, comes from uh, a a similar idea, but from a different perspective. The language of binding and loosing there uh, is also a metaphor for the local church's authority to test people's professions of faith. Uh, But this time, it's the authority to declare uh, that as far as we can tell, uh, you're not a part of God's kingdom. You're excluded from God's kingdom. So out of love for you, out of love for God's people, out of love for the glory of God's name, we feel compelled to exclude you from membership in our church. That door has been closed to you, at least for a time. Because as far as we can tell, you you remain bound in your sins. This, I believe, is the God-given authority Uh, of the local church. And Jesus reiterates it in verses 19 and 20. Again, he says, indicating that he's kind of reiterating it, again, truly I tell you, I'm still solemnly serious about this, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, many of you know, if you've been around church a little bit, you'll know that these verses are often taken to be talking about prayer, a wonderful encouragement that if even two or three Christians get together for a prayer meeting, uh, that, that God is there with them and he'll, and he'll answer their prayers. Right? But I think these verses are much more connected to the verses that come before. Uh, the two Christians here are probably the two or three witnesses from verse 16. They're not two or three Christians gathering together for a prayer meeting. Likewise, the phrase, if two of you on earth agree about anything, that word anything I think would be better translated as any matter of dispute or any particular judgment that's before the church. The same word's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. If you want to chase that up later on, the context there is clearly about the importance of the church making judgments about sin. And the context is the same here. In fact, even that phrase, uh, uh, anything they ask for, uh, could also be translated as anything they're demanding or anything they're pleading for. This is important because this is not uh, a general promise about prayer. Right? There are lots of wonderful promises about prayer in the Bible. Right? Please look them up. Uh, but this is not a promise uh, generally about prayer. It's a promise that if two people in the church come uh, to agreement uh, on a judgment about any matter of dispute in the church, uh, and the church officially affirms that judgment, then God the Father will affirm that judgment too. That, that, that's the promise here as far as I can tell. 
And God does that for two reasons. First, uh, because of verse 18, the verse before, God recognises and validates the authority of binding and loosing that he gave to the church. He's not going to undermine that. He recognises it. He validates it. Uh, And second, verse 20, uh, because when the church agrees on this sort of judgment, uh, when they've exercised and worked through this process with patience, with prayer, with clear preaching from God's word, uh, then Jesus says that he, as God's judge, is with us. So the church's judgment uh, is endorsed by Jesus as judge. And now I understand some of you feel, would feel very uncomfortable about this. I feel uncomfortable because, I, like, and I get that totally. I get that this authority of the local church to uh, exclude people has been done throughout history in lots of ways that weren't loving at all, are sometimes in downright abusive ways. And perhaps you've experienced that personally. I don't want to acknowledge that pain that you might have experienced. But, but as painful as that is, I don't believe it's a sufficient reason for a local church to stop exercising this authority that God's given us. There are risks the other way if we do. I will become overly permissive with sin. We'll pretend that sin doesn't really matter. We'll be in the business of sweeping sin under the carpet because it's just too hard to deal with. And goodness knows the church has done way too much of that. It might make us all feel more comfortable to set aside this teaching, but it won't make us a more loving church. It won't help us to show love for our brother or sister who's wandered into sin. It won't help us to show love and care for the people of God, who God wants to be holy as he is holy. And it won't help us to show love for the glory of our God's name. So we exercise this God-given authority. We exercise it reluctantly, we, we, we exercise it carefully, we exercise it lovingly, uh, but we exercise it. Uh, so in this crazy time uh, of COVID-19, uh, and in the future, uh, how is it that we care for a brother or sister who, who we notice has wandered into sin? We notice that they seem to be disconnecting from Christ's people. Uh, this passage teaches us that sometimes... Uh, we must care for that brother or sister by excluding them in love. Sometimes. Uh, But always we must care for them by pursuing them in love. Just as our gracious Heavenly Father has pursued us. Let's pray. Oh, our dear God, uh, we thank you for this, your word. Oh, we are so conscious of that first point we spoke about today. That we do all sin, and we do indeed sin against one another. Uh, We pray that you would uh, make us all the more into a church that doesn't pretend that that's not the case, uh, that owns the fact that we do sin and that we do sin against one another. Uh, We pray that we would be uh, quick to deal with sin in our church in line with these teachings of our Lord Jesus in this passage. Uh, Help us, Father, uh, fill our hearts with love uh, that we might keep pursuing a, a wandering brother or sister in love. And fill our hearts with love uh, and, and courage uh, that if it's needed, uh, that we might have the courage to exclude a wandering brother or sister for their sake, uh, that they might be restored to Christ and his people. Uh, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.